0: Welcome back to Rockford Reading Daily. We are continuing to read The Souls of Black Folk by W.E.B. Du Bois. We are beginning Chapter 7, entitled Of the Black Belt. I am black but comely, O ye daughters of Jerusalem, as the tents of Kedar, as the curtains of Solomon. Look not upon me, because I am black, because the sun hath looked upon me. My mother's children were angry with me, That made me the keeper of the vineyards. But mine own vineyard have I not kept. The Song of Solomon Out of the north the train thundered, And we woke to see the crimson soil of Georgia Stretching away bare and monotonous right and left. Here and there lay straggling, unlovely villages, And lean men loafed leisurely at the depots. Then again came the stretch of pines and clay. Yet we did not nod, nor weary of the scene, for this is historic ground. Right across our track, 360 years ago, wandered the cavalcade of Hernando de Soto, looking for gold in the great sea. And he and his foot sore captives disappeared yonder in the grim forest to the west. Here sits Atlanta, the city of a hundred hills, with something western, something southern, and something quite its own in its busy life. And a little past Atlanta, to the Southwest is the land of the Cherokees, and there, not far from where Sam Holes was crucified, you may stand on the spot which is today the center of the Negro problem, the center of those nine million men who are America's dark heritage from slavery and the slave trade. Not only is Georgia thus the geographical focus of our Negro population, but in many other respects, both now and yesterday, The Negro problems have seemed to be centered in this state. No other state in the Union can count a million Negroes among its citizens, a population as large as the slave population of the whole Union in 1800. No other state fought so long and strenuously to gather this host of Africans. Oglethorpe thought slavery against law and gospel, but the circumstances which gave Georgia its first inhabitants were not calculated to furnish citizens overnight in their ideas about Roman slaves. Despite the prohibitions of the trustees, these Georgians, like some of their descendants, proceeded to take the law into their own hands. And so pliant were the judges, and so flagrant the smuggling, and so earnest were the prayers of Whitefield, that by the middle of the 18th century all restrictions were swept away and the slave trade went merrily on for 50 years and more. Down in Darien, where the Delagar riots took place some summers ago, there used to come a strong protest against slavery from the Scotch Highlanders. And the Morivians of Ebenezer did not like the school system. But not till the Haitian terror of Toussaint was the trade in men even checked. While the National Statute of, excuse me, while the National Statute of 1808 did not suffice to stop it. How the Africans poured in, 50,000 between 1790 and 1810, and then, from Virginia and from smugglers, 2,000 a year for many years more. So the 30,000 Negroes of Georgia in 1790 were doubled in a decade, where over 100,000 in 1810, had reached 200,000 in 1820, and half a million at the time of the war. Thus, like a snake, the black population writhed upward. But we must hasten on our journey. This that we pass as we leave Atlanta is the ancient land of the Cherokees that brave Indian nation which strove so long for its fatherland until fate in the United States government drove them beyond the Mississippi. If you wish to ride with me, you must come into the, quote, Jim Crow car, end quote. There will be no objection. Already four other white men and a little white girl with her nurse are in there. Usually the races are mixed in there, but the white coach is all white. Of course, this car is not so good as the other, but it is fairly clean and comfortable the discomfort lies chiefly in the hearts of those four black men yonder and in mine so what stands out to me about the passages that we just read is the <clears throat> the importance of the state of georgia and the city of atlanta when it comes to black people's history in this country because of the volume of black people who were in there who were there and It's no way to remove the importance that this area plays without also, there's no way to separate the importance that the state of Georgia plays and the city of Atlanta plays without also speaking about why there were so many black people there and why it has become or why it was so uh, impactful or important in black American history. and. It's because of the amount of slaves that they had. Uh, it's because of the resistance to the end of slavery that they had. And so I find it, I find one of the things that I've learned from the boys is a deeper understanding of the importance of Atlanta with him teaching at Atlanta University, uh, understanding, uh, learning more about Atlanta University uh, through his perspective and through his vantage point. <clears throat> uh, those are all things that, those are That is another portion of things which I have taken away from not only reading The Souls of Black Folk, but also going outside of the book and listening to speeches and watching other documentaries and things like that about not only Du Bois, but this time period that he's speaking on. Okay. Where are we at? All right. We rumble south in a quite, excuse me, we rumble south in quite a businesslike way. The bare red clay and pines of northern Georgia begin to disappear and in their place appears a rich, rolling land, luxuriant and here and there well tilled. This is the land of the Creek Indians and a hard time the Georgians had to seize it. The towns grow more frequent and more interesting and brand new cotton mills rise on every side. Below McCone, the world grows darker, for now we approach the black belt, that strange land of shadows at which even slaves paled in the past and whence come now only faint and half-intelligible murmurs to the world beyond. Quote, the Jim Crow car, end quote, grows larger and a shade better. Three rough rough-filled hands and two or three white loafers accompany us and the newsboy still spreads his waves at one end. And the newsboy still spreads his wares at one end. The sun is setting, but we can see that the great cotton country as we enter it. Excuse me. The sun is setting, but we can see the great cotton country as we enter it. The soil now dark and fertile, now thin and gray, with fruit trees and the dehabilitated buildings all the way to Albany. Excuse me, I butchered that last sentence. At Albany, in the heart of the Black Belt, we stop. 200 miles south of Atlanta, 200 miles west of the Atlantic, and 100 miles north of the Great Gulf lies Daltrey County with 10,000 Negroes and 2,000 whites. The Flint River winds down from Andersonville and turning suddenly at the Albany, the county seat hurries on to join the Chattanooga and the sea. Andrew Jackson knew the Flint well and marched across at once to avenge the Indian Massacre at Fort Mims. That was in 1814, not long before the Battle of New Orleans, and by the Creek Treaty that followed his campaign, all Daltrey County and much other rich land was ceded to Georgia. Still, settlers fought shy of this land, for the Indians were all about, and they were unpleasant neighbors in those days. The Panic of 1837, which Jackson bequeathed to Van Buren, turned the planters from the impoverished lands of Virginia, the Carolinas, and East Georgia toward the West. The Indians were removed to Indian territory, and settlers poured into these coveted lands to retrieve their broken fortunes. For a radius of a hundred miles about Albany, stretched a great fertile land, luxuriant with forests of pine, oak, ash, hickory, and poplar, hot with the sun and damp with the rich black swampland and here the cornerstone of the the co- the cornerstone of the cotton kingdom was laid. Albany is today a wide-streeted, placid southern town with a broad sweep of stores and saloons and flanking rows of homes, whites usually to the north and blacks to the south. Six days in the week, the town looks decidedly too small for itself and takes frequent and prolonged naps. But on Saturday, suddenly the whole county disgorges itself upon the place, and a perfect flood of black peasantry pours through the streets, fills the stores, blocks the sidewalks, chokes the thoroughfares, and takes full possession of the town. They are black, sturdy, uncouth country folk, good-natured and simple, talkative to a degree, and yet far more silent and brooding than the crowds of the Rhine-Fowls or Naples or Krakow. They drink considerable quantities of whiskey, but do not get very drunk. They talk and laugh loudly at times, but seldom quarrel or fight. They walk up and down the streets, meet and gossip with friends, stare at the shop windows, buy coffee, cheap candy, and clothes, and at dusk drive home. Happy? Well, no, not exactly happy, but much happier than as though they had not come. Thus, Albany is a real capital. A typical southern county town, the center of the life of 10,000 souls their point of contact with the outer world their center of news and gossip their market for buying and selling borrowing and lending their fountain of justice and law once upon a time we knew country life so well and city life so little that we were illust- that we illustrated city life as that of a closely crowded country district now the world has well nigh forgotten what the country is And we must imagine the little city of black people scattered far and wide over 300 lonesome square miles of land without train or trolley in the midst of cotton and corn and wide patches of sand and gloomy soil. It gets pretty hot in southern Georgia in July, a sort of dull, determined heat that seems quite independent of the sun. So it took us some days to muster courage enough to leave the porch and venture out on the long country roads that we might see this unknown world. Finally we started. It was about 10 in the morning. Excuse me. It was about 10 in the morning, bright with the faint breeze, and we jogged leisurely southward in the Valley of the Flint. We passed the scattered box-like cabins of the Brickyard Hands and the long tenement row facetiously called, quote, the Ark, end quote, and were soon in the open country and on the confines of the great plantations of other days. There is the, quote, Joe Fields Place, end quote, a rough old fellow was he, and had killed many a quote nigger, end quote, in his day. Twelve miles his plantation used to run, a regular barony. It is nearly all gone now. Only strangling bits belong to the family, and the rest has passed to Jews and Negroes. Even the bits which I left heavily mortgaged and, like the rest of the land, tilled by tenants. Here is one of them now, a tall brown man a hard worker and a hard drinker illiterate but versed in farm lore as his nodding crops declare this distressingly new board house is his and he has just moved out yonder and he has just moved out yonder moss grown cabin with this one square room hmm okay let's have a reflection So what stands out to me immediately from the passages that we just read is the relationship that the indigenous people had with the white Americans at the time. And I would say just Americans in general, but I want to be specific about the fact that it was the army was being led by white people. The country was being led by white people. And so... The battle for land that was that was taking place, even almost even the way that is framed by Du Bois, sort of he talks about them not being good neighbors. And not that Du Bois is purposely doing this, but I think just the time period does this is where uh you know, how can you be a good neighbor with somebody who's stealing the land that they're on, who's stolen the land and has, you know, committed genocide and is Committed slavery to maintain uh, Maintain that land that they have stolen Or to maintain the power That can help them to maintain The land that they've stolen And so uh, just the I can't remember how long The American Indian War went on and uh, I prefer to use the term indigenous I think that's the the most Politically correct term in 2022 Uh, However that's one of the things that stands out to me. Uh, it also stands out to me that as the indigenous people were having this battle with the white people and the the white people of of America, that it was a battle that black people was, were waging as well, too, with white people in America when it came to slavery. And so just the sheer amount of oppression and exploitation that was going on at that time against people of color is something that is, dauntingly present in the passages that we've read and uh, let's continue reading it. <clears throat> from the curtains in Benton's house down the road a dark comely face is staring at the strangers for passing carriages are not everyday occurrences here Benton is an intelligent yellow man with a good-sized family and manages a plantation blasted by the war and now the broken staff of the widow he might be well-to-do, they say, but he caresses too much in Albany. He, but he caruses too much in Albany, excuse me. And the half-desolate spirit of neglect born of the very soil seems to have settled on these acres. In times past, there were cotton gins and machinery here, but they have rotted away. The whole land seems forlorn and forsaken. Here are the remnants of the vast plantations of the Sheldons, the Pellets, and the Rinsons but the souls of them are past. The houses lie in half-ruin or have half wholly disappeared. The fences have flown and the families are wandering in the world. Strange vicissitudes have met these Willem masters. Yonder stretched the wide acres of Bill Dad Resor. He died in wartime, but the upstart overseer hastened to wed the widow. Then he went, and his neighbors too, and now only the black tenant remains. But the shadow hand of the master's grandnephew or cousin or creditor reaches out of the gray distance to collect the rack rent remorselessly, and so the land is uncared for and poor. Only the black tenants can stand such a system, and they only because they must. Ten miles we have ridden today and have seen no white face. And so again, as he's describing his journey on the black belt, he does, the boys does a great job of illustrating the desperation and the dire circumstances that these black people in the black belt are living with. And these circumstances are directly tied to the evil that is slavery. A resistless feeling of depression falls slowly upon us, despite the gaudy sunshine and the green cotton fields. This, then, is the cotton kingdom, the shadow of a marvelous dream, and where is the king? Perhaps this is he, the sweating plowman tilling his 80 acres with two lean mules and fighting a hard battle with debt. So we sit musing until, as we turn a corner on the sandy road, there comes a fair scene suddenly in view a neat cottage snugly ensconed by the road, and near it, a little store. A tall bronze man rises from the porch as we hail him and comes out to our carriage. He is six feet in height with a sober face that smiles gravely. He walks too straight to be a tenant. Yes, he owns 240 acres. Quote, the land has run down since the boom days of 1850. End quote, he explains, and cotton is low. Three black tenants live on his place, and, his, and, his, and in his little store, he keeps a small stock of tobacco, snuff, soap, and soda for the neighborhood. Here is his gin house with new machinery just installed. 300 bales of cotton went through it last year. Two children he has sent away to school. Yes, he says sadly, he is getting on, but cotton is down to four cents. I know how debt sits staring at him. Wherever the king may be, the parks and palaces of the cotton kingdom have not wholly disappeared. We plunge even now into great groves of oak and towering pine with an undergrowth of myrtle and shrubbery. This was the, quote, home house, end quote, of the Thompsons, slave barons who drove their coach and four in the merry past. All is silence now in ashes and tangled weeds. The owner puts his whole fortune into the rising cotton industry of the 50s, and with the falling prices of the 80s, he packed up and stole away. Yonder is another grove with unkempt lawn, great magnolias, and grass-grown paths. The big house stands in half ruin. its great front door staring blankly at the street, and the back part grotesquely restored for its black tenant. A shabby, well-built Negro he is, unlucky and and irresolute. He digs hard to pay rent to the white girl who owns the remnant of the place. She married a policeman and lives in Savannah. And so I think also what you can what's being illustrated well here is the the in, the the downfall of this this industry, this cotton kind of industry. The and it's seeing the downfall be illustrated in this way, the the thing that is the most glaring is the fact that the only way that this industry got built to the prominence that it did get built to was because of slave labor, was because of the Africans and subsequently in their subsequent generations that had to work 16, 18 hour days from the sun came from the point that the sun came up to the point where the sun went down, who were exploited in sexual ways, <clears throat> who were explo- exploited in, in every way possible, and they didn't have to hire laborers. They could just... uh Build these families, or they could force these families to, to force these women and men to have sex and procreate and get more and, and increase their labor force that way. Uh, also, by having this free labor, it, it drastically changed the scales of pay. And so it made it so that even the white people who were free, who were getting paid to do work, were getting paid so much less than they uh, deserved because of the fact that there was a free labor market that was in existence. Let's keep reading. Now and again we come to churches. Here is one now. Shepherds, they call it. A great whitewashed barn of a thing, perched on stilts of stone, and looking for all the world as though it were just resting here a moment and might be expected to waddle off down the road at almost any time. And yet it is the center of a hundred cabin homes, and sometimes of a Sunday. 500 persons from far and near gather here and talk and eat and sing. There is a schoolhouse near, a very airy, empty shed, but even this is an improvement, for usually the school is held in the church. The churches vary from log huts to those like shepherds, and the schools from nothing to this little house that sits demurely on the county line. It is a tiny plank house, perhaps 10 by 20. and has within a double row of plow unplaned benches resting mostly on legs, sometimes on boxes. Opposite the door is a square homemade desk. In one corner are the ruins of a stove, and in the other, a dim blackboard. It is the cheerfulest schoolhouse I have seen in Doughtry save in town. Oh, excuse me. It is the cheerfulest schoolhouse I have seen in Doughtry save in town. Back of the schoolhouse is a large house, two stories high and not quite finished. Societies meet there. Societies, quote, to care for the sick and bury the dead, end quote. And these societies grow and flourish. We had come to the boundaries of Dowtry and were about to turn west along the county line when all these sites were pointed out to us by a kindly old man, black, white haired, and seventy. Forty-five years he had lived there and now supports himself and his old wife by the help of the steer-tethered yonder and the charity of his black neighbors. He shows us the farm of the hills just across the county line in Baker, a widow and two strapping sons who raised ten bales, one need not add cotton down here, last year. There are fences and pigs and cows, and the soft-voiced, velvet-skinned young Memnon, who sauntered half bashfully over to greet the strangers is proud of his home. We turn now to the west along the county line. Great dismantled trunks of pines tower above the green cotton fields, cracking their naked gnarled fingers toward the border of living forest beyond. There is little beauty in this region, only a sort of crude abandon that suggests power, a naked grandeur, as it were. The houses are bare and straight. There are no hammocks or easy chairs and few flowers. So when... As here at Rawdon's, one sees a vine clinking to a little porch and home-like windows peeping over the fences, one takes a long breath. I think I never before quite realized the place of the fence in civilization. This is the land of the unfenced, where crouch on, where crouch on either hand scores of ugly one-room cabins, cheerless and dirty. Here lies the Negro problem in its naked dirt and pen- penury, and here are no fences. But now and then the crisscross rails or straight palings break into view, and then we know a touch of culture is near. Of course, Harrison Goggin, a quite yellow man, young, smooth-faced, and diligent. Of course, he is a lord of some hundred acres, and we expect to see a vision of well-kept rooms and fat beds and laughing children. For has he not fine fences? And those over yonder, why should they build fences on the rack-rented land? it will only increase their rent. On we wind, through sand and pines and glimpses of old plantations, till there creeps into sight a cluster of buildings, wood and brick, mills and houses, and scattered cabins. It seemed quite a village. As it came nearer and nearer, however, the aspect changed. The buildings were rotting, the bricks were falling out, the mills were silent, and the store was closed. Only in the cabins appeared now and then a bit of lazy life. I could imagine the place under some weird spell and was half-minded to search out the princess. An old, ragged black man, honest, simple, and and improvident, told us the tale. The Wizard of the North, the Capitalist, Have rushed down in the 70s to woo this coy, dark soil. He bought a square mile or more, and for a time, the field hands sang, the gins groaned, and the mills buzzed. Then came a change. The agent's son embezzled the funds and ran off with them. Then the agent himself disappeared. Finally, the new agent stole even the books, and the company and RAF closed his business and his houses, refused to sell, and let houses and furniture and machinery rust and rot. So the waters-lowering plantation was stilled by the spell of dishonesty and stands like some gaunt rebuke to a scarred land. Somehow that plantation ended our days' journey, for I could not shake off the influence of that silent scene. Back toward town we glided, past the straight and thread-like pines, past the dark tree-dotted pine where the air was heavy with the dead sweet perfume. White slender fitted us excuse me, white slender legged carloos flitted us, and the garnet blooms of the cotton looked gay against the green and purple stalks. A peasant girl was hoeing in the field, white turbaned and black limbed. All this we saw, but the spell still lay on us. How curious a land is this, how full of untold story, of tragedy and laughter and the rich legacy of human life, shadowed with a tragic past and big with future promise. This is the Black Belt of Georgia. Daltrey County is the west end of the Black Belt, and men once called it the Egypt of the Confederacy. It is full of historic interest. First there is the swamp, to the west, where the Chickasaw Catchy flows sullenly southward. The shadow of an old plantation lies at its edge, forlorn and dark. Then comes the pool. Pendant gray moss and, brack- and brackish waters appear, and forests filled with wild fowl. In one place the wood is on fire, smouldering in dull red anger, but nobody minds. Then the swamp grows beautiful. A raised road built by chain Negro convicts dips down into it. and forms a way way, walled and almost covered in living green. Spreading trees spring from a prodigal luxuriance of undergrowth. Great dark green shadows fade into the black background until all is one mass of tangled semi-tropical foliage, marvelous in its weird savage splendor. Once we cross the black silent stream, where the sad trees and writhing creepers all glinting fiery yellow and green, seemed like some vast cathedral. Some green Milan builded of wild wood. And as I crossed, I seemed to see again that fierce tragedy of 70 years ago. Askiola, the Indian Negro chieftain, had risen in the swamps of Florida, vowing vengeance. His war cry reached the red Creeks of Daltry, and their war cry rang from the Chattahoochee to the sea. Men and women and children fled and fell before them as they swept into Dowtry. In yonder shadows, a dark and hideously painted warrior glided stealthily on, another and another, until three hundred had crept into the treacherous swamp. Then the false line closing about them called the white men from the east. Waist deep, they fought beneath the tall trees until the war cry was hushed and the Indians glided back into the west. Small wonder the, Small wonder the wood is red. Then came the black slaves. Day after day, the clank of chained feet marching from Virginia and Carolina to Georgia was heard in these rich swamplands. Day after day, the songs of the Kaloos, the wail of the motherless, and the muttered curses of the wretched echoed from the Flint to the Chickasawichi. until by 1860 there had risen in West Daughtry perhaps the richest slave kingdom the modern world ever knew. A hundred and fifty barons commanded the labor of nearly six thousand Negroes, held sway over farms with ninety thousand acres of tilled land, valued even in times of cheap soil at three millions of dollars. Two thousand bales of gin cotton went yearly to New England. Excuse me, twenty thousand bales of gin cotton. Twenty thousand bales of gin cotton went yearly to England, new and old and men that came there bankrupt made money and grew rich. In a single decade, the cotton output increased fourfold and the value of lands was tripled. It was the heyday of the novea rich and the life of careless extravagance reigned among the masters. Four and six bobtail thoroughbreds rode their coaches to town. Open hospitality and gay entertainment were the rule. Parks and groves were laid out, rich with flower and vine, and in the midst stood the low, wide-hauled, quote, big house, end quote, with its porch and columns and great fireplaces. And yet with all this, there was something sordid, something forced, a certain feverish unrest and recklessness. For was not all this show and tinsel built upon a groan? Quote, this land was a little hell, end quote, said a ragged brown and gray-faced man to me. We were seated near a roadside blacksmith shop and behind was the bare ruin of some master's home. Quote, I've seen niggers drop dead in the furrow, but they were kicked aside and the plow never stopped. And down in the guardhouse, there's where the blood ran. End quote. With such foundations, a kingdom must in time sway and fall. The masters moved to Macon and Augusta and left only the irresponsible overseers on the land. And the result is such ruin as this the Lloyd, quote, home place, end quote, great waving oaks, a spread of lawn, myrtles, and chestnuts, all ragged and wild. A solitary gatepost standing where once was a castle entrance. An old rusty anvil lying amid rotting bellows and wood in the ruins of a blacksmith shop. A wide, rambling old mansion, brown and dingy filled now with the grandchildren of the slaves who once waited on his tables, while the family of the master has dwindled to two lone women who live in Macon and feed hungrily off the remnants of an earldom. So we ride on past phantom gates and falling homes, past the once flourishing farms of the Smiths, the Gandys, and the Lagores, and find all dilapidated and half-ruined, even there where a solitary white woman, a relic of other days, Sits alone in state among mouths of Negroes, and rides to town in her ancient coach each day. Okay, I think we're going to go ahead and end this episode here, and then we will be back tomorrow to finish this chapter of. And again. What stands out to me from the passages that we just read is that after the failing of slavery, or after the failing of slavery, after the end of slavery, uh, and the end of the Civil War, that it was the black people who were stuck there to deal with a lot of the negative residual effects, a lot of the negative ramifications of of all the things that were wrong with slavery. The, the people who were perpetuating this cycle had enough money to leave this area and to go somewhere else or to or they weren't there to begin with. They had already begun to leave and leave overseers in charge. And so we see how, and this is something that has been a commonality, when capitalists and the people that are in the 1% create messes, it is the people who are in the lower classes and the working people and the 99% who are left to deal with uh, the ramifications of those things. And so it was the descendants of slaves who were stuck living in an area where there was not a way to make livable wages, where there was not uh, standard, where there were substandard living conditions. Uh, They... They were, their ancestors had to deal with the negative physical and psychological effects of slavery, and they were left to deal with the negative physical and financial and psychological effects of the end of slavery. And so uh, we see even in what is, what may be perceived to be a victory by some people for uh, black Americans that it was still defeat within that, or if maybe not defeat might not be the right word, that it was still a, a battle to be, another battle to be had within that. And the war of freedom, uh, emancipation of, from chattel slavery was just one battle and that there was no time in between the next battle. They had to immediately begin to battle what it meant to be a free black person in a racist country. So share this on whatever platform you're listening to it on. We will be back tomorrow to finish up this chapter from The Souls of Black Folk by W.E.B. Du Bois. Remember, we put these episodes out on a daily basis to provide you the opportunity to begin or further your journey in the struggle to end police, terrorism, mass incarceration and racial injustice. I'll let you tomorrow.